Let's go. Let's get cracking. So we have the second book of the Torah, the second chapter of the Zebra, up to Parsha Shemais. Ah, so much to learn. Baruch Hashem. So here we go. Notice a uh, fascinating theme that you're going to find in the Parsha of names is a lack of names. Very interesting. We start out with names, but as you learn through the Parsha, you'll notice it seems like the Torah tries its best to not give names. Something, uh, just throwing it out there. As you'll notice as we, as we go through this. Here we go. Ve'elah Shmos B'nai Yisrael. And these are the names of the B'nai Yisrael. Ha'bo'im Mitzrayma that were coming down to Egypt. Es Yaakov with Yaakov. Ishu Beso. A man and his household. Ba'u. They came together. And now the Parsha lists their names. Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Vihudi, Yisrael, Hazrul, and Uvinyam, and Don, Avtali, God, Va'asher. V'ikol Nefesh, Yotzei, Yerech, Yaakov. Shavim Nefesh was total of 70, including Yochever who was born uh, coming into the walls as they entered Egypt. The Yosef, and Yosef was in Mitzrayim. He's part of the counting of 70, as well as Ephraim and Menashe, which is an interesting conversation. Why the Torah mentions that Yosef is part of the 70, the count of 70 in Egypt, and it doesn't mention Ephraim and Menashe. Let's learn two more psukim before we stop and start uh, tearing apart each pasuk. And Yosef died, and all of his brothers and all of that generation. Ubnei Yisrael and the children of Nezel Paru, they were fruitful by Yishritzu, and they kind of were, Sharetz is like, you're all over the place. We were all over the place. Vayirbu, and we expanded. You could be all over the place. I, I used to, for a while I was wondering, what's the difference between being like Yishritzu and Vayirbu? And the answer is, you could be very few and be all over the place. There are some, there's some, uh, you know. Black year, so, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. But, uh, you know, like the Nanachs. You know, like Nanachs. I don't know how many there are, but whenever I see them, it's like the same guys. But they're like everywhere. When I'm in Eretz Yisrael, they're like everywhere. Can I know her? Like they, they have this kayak and they have this ability and they, and they get out there. You know, so Bnei Yisrael were paru; they were fruitful. By Yishutzu, they they were like they were out in Egypt, really involved in everything. By Yirbu, and they were in high numbers as well. By Yatsmu bimod maod, and they became by Yatsmu, and they became strong. Bimod with a lot, maod a lot. Vatimalei haaretz osam, and the land became filled with them. All right, so here we go. Let's go, that's the first uh, seven verses. And let's uh, go through these problems. So Pasuk Aleph was, these are the names of the Bnei Yisrael, Habo and Mitzrayim, that were coming down to Mitzrayim. So previously, we discussed, we had, uh, I believe last year, we focused on Rashi for quite some time, where Rashi says that we were counted after the death to remind us how precious we are to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that we're compared to the stars, at the same way stars shine brightest when there's night around them. That's when B'nai Yisrael shines brightest. And this is a fact with us. It's not necessarily a compliment. It's not necessarily something negative. It's a reality. Rav Meisha Sher, Zechert Sadik Levracha, who was the leader of Agud Yisrael of America for many, many years. And you know, before, now, now they have other CEOs. Uh, but Rav Meisha was a tremendous Sadik. Tremendous Sadik. And... Um, one of his opening phrases, one of his opening lines that he used very often when he would meet new politicians on behalf of the Torah community, he would say 
that one thing you have to learn about us as a Jewish people is that we're like tea bags. We don't get going till we're, till we're in hot water. That was his. That was his. He's like, you, just, you have to know that about us. To know that, like, where are you? When we're in hot water, we like all of a sudden we're just you know we're we're out there. Um. So and and it's true. Not only when we're in hot water, when other people are in hot water, right? Very often, like you go to Eretz Yisrael in Israel. I recall, you know, the first little bit that I was there, it was very hard to go to a supermarket. Some supermarkets actually have order in how you check out. Other supermarkets, if you don't be like, yeah, lean over the front, you'll be standing there. Till Matzeh Shabbos. You want to buy a cake on Arab Shabbos? You'll be there till they close, till they reopen. You're not going to get there. And be like, yeah, it's, there's no, it's just like, yeah, they throw money at the counter and it's just, it's like a balagan. Is that you have to be like, you have to push your way around. And you're like, oh, where's everybody's manners? And then you realize, after you get part of that society, it's societal. And these same people that, to us, as to me as an American, initially were like, this is really rude. You learn they're the same people. They would take a bullet for you before anybody else in the world. That, that's how they, that's their culture in the supermarket or when they're out there. But they'd be the first person. Anybody, anybody in my message, they, what are you doing? They're going, you know, they'll scream at the guy and they'll, they'll, they'll step up for you. And that's part of what Rashi means when it says, Stars are always in the sky, but we don't see it when there's light outside. Stars shine the brightest when there's darkness around them, which is a, an incredible koach. It's just a reality. It's a reality of how, uh, of how Kla Yisrael functions. So these are the names, these are the names of, of um, B'nai Yisrael, okay? That were coming down to Mitzrayim. They were coming down. What does it mean they were coming down? They weren't coming down to Mitzrayim. They were already in Mitzrayim. In Mitzrayim. Why doesn't the Torah say these are the names of B'nai Yisrael that were in, the descendants of Jacob, that were in Mitzrayim? So the Balaturim, the, sorry, who says this? The Yalkut Shemaini. The Yalkut Shemaini says something, uh, something very interesting, which is in the first seven verses that we just read, it's, uh, it's in the present tense because we were multiplying and growing strong. And during these seven verses, we actually were travelers. And therefore, we were mighty and growing strong, which means that as Jews and Gullus, we have to realize, we focused on this about a month, ago, a month or so uh, ago, we have to realize this is not our place. We're Ba'im Mitzrayim. And Yaakov and his descendants, as long as they were in Egypt, they knew I don't belong here. This is not my place. It's not my place. We're here. There's a famine. We need to come down to Egypt. This is where Hashem wants us. And for us living in Gullus, right? There's, listen, there's a mitzvah to live in Eretz Yisrael. So why aren't we living in Eretz Yisrael? Because there's, the truth is, while we're in Gullus, and there is an exile going on. The Jews obligated to live in an environment that they could be the best Abde Hashem, be the best servant of Hashem. And if I could be a better Ebed Hashem in the city that we live in or in the situation that we live in, so then I'm, that's the place where I'm supposed to live as long as there is Gullus. You know, to move to a, another country with a different culture is not an easy thing. And there's a lot, lot that you need to put up with and, and learn. And it could get in the way of being in, in Ebed Hashem, as we discussed in the tefillah class on Monday night, a lot of the issues that crop up that people have with Yiddishkeit is not real issues with Hashem and it's not real issues with the Torah. It's issues with the society that's been created over the past hundred years. 
and the system that we've created for ourselves, and people grow disenchanted. And certainly when you put yourself into a different system that you're totally unfamiliar with, and you're like, why is it like this? Why, you know, all of a sudden you can't get your kid into a school. It's like, isn't it, a, shouldn't I have my kid in a Jewish day school? And you, no, you can't do it because you're Asfard and you're not Ashkenaz. Or you're, you're, you're this type of Chassid and you're, and you're that. And it's, it's, a, it's a different thing. And for me, I can't even knock it because I have nothing to do with that society and that environment and the nuances of it. I'm clueless. And this is, you know, we had the, Zelda and I had the merit to live in Eretz Yisrael. I was there for six years. Um, we moved back here as our oldest was starting school because... Good luck getting your kid into a school there or even knowing where you should send your kid into a school. I didn't even know. I didn't even know. I don't know where. And it's still, I'm, I'm clueless as to, as to how the system works. One of the conversations that we had, and we moved back as Yaakov was uh, about to enter uh, Cheder, and I, I, one of the things I said to her was, I was like, Zell, like, if this kid grows up and, you know, we come from the yeshiva system, we're going to put him through Jewish day schools and yeshiva, he, he comes home as a teenager, let's say he starts rebelling. What's he going to do already? Like, what's he going to do? That, that I don't know about. What's he going to do? Come home with girls? Come home with music? Come home with drugs? Come home, whatever he's coming home. I don't know. Like, I don't, you know, whatever. Whatever journey Hashem sends, we're just trying our best to live. I, I, I get it. Like, I get it. I don't want it, but I get it. If my kid comes home, like, just like talking like Israeli politics and like burning dumpsters, I don't, I don't get it. I, think, I, I, don't, I don't know where to start. I push, I simply don't, like, I don't know what the mechanics of it is to know where, and vice versa. Somebody there is like, whoa, the, how do you know? You, you, you have to be honest with what you're, what, what you know and try your best. Again, as long as we're in Gullahs to do it. So, Klau Yisrael actually expanded and grew tremendously as long as we were Ba'im. As long as we realized we're travelers, we don't belong here. And then, after Pasuk Zion, what happens in Pasuk Ches? I'm going to go back, but look, Vayak, we, we, we became very strong. And we're all over the place now. We're no longer just journeying through Egypt. We're now, this is our home. This is our place. We got a Jewish president. Yeah, we got a Jewish president, we got Yosef. Yosef was up there, eh? Now there's a new king over Egypt, and we'll discuss what a new king means. Didn't know Yosef, and all of a sudden the servitude starts. Klal Yisrael got a little too comfortable in Mitzrayim. Eh? And now, very nice until now you got there, but now the, the, the Tsarists are going to start once you hit uh, that point. And that's why it says, what was our question? They were already there. Why is it? written in present tense, the answer is because their mindset of Yaakov and his children were, we don't, we don't belong here, we're traveling here, we need to be here. Then things were fine and the Rabban Shalom brought bracha to them. As soon as we got too comfortable, the mindset changed, that's when, uh, that's when the issues started. What issues started? So Vayakam Melachadosh al Mitzrayim, a new king rose up on Mitzrayim, Asher lo yada as Yosef, who did not know Yosef. Okay, what does that mean? So Rashi brings a dispute between Rav and Shmuel. One says that it was a new pharaoh, and with the new pharaoh came new decrees. And um, if there is a new pharaoh, then this all makes sense, right? You say, it's a new paro, different leader. Paro in Egyptian could have meant either king or deity. It's not so clear, but they had multiple pharaohs. That was like their, that was the, the title. 
So one opinion is, well, Zinu Paro, okay, Zinu Paro, so he had a whole different approach than the Paro who was there with Yosef. He didn't have the same level of Akara Satov, of gratitude. But if it's the same Paro, so what happened? What changed over here? So the Medrash in Shemais Rabbah, in Aleph Ches, tells us, a fas- it's really a, a fascinating Medrash, the wild Medrash. Medrash says that... Um, I'm going to hold off the Medrash for a second and ask a question. I want to ask a couple questions. Okay? We're going to get to the question. The Medrash that we're going to mention is that this actually to insert and enslave the Yidin wasn't Paro's idea. It was the Egyptians' idea. The Egyptians started the whole servitude theme. There's a Medrash. We'll get there soon. But according to the opinion that it was the same Paro that renewed his decrees. See, here's the problem. The problem's like this. Same Paro, who said to Yosef, when he came out of prison, I want you to be the leader. Why? Because you said to me, when you interpreted my dreams, Biladai, Elokim, Yana. Right? It's all God. I saw God on your tongue. God's going to show Paro, and by Yomer Paro Labodov, Paro says to all his, his servants, Look at this guy. He's got a spirit of God in him. Of course we got to appoint him. And then he says, You got to be the one who takes the position because after God's given you all these things, I mean, you're the greatest Chacham of all. So Paro's dealing with Yosef like he knows, every, he knows all about God. And he's a maimon, he's a believer, and he knows very well that there's a, he knows very well that there's a, uh, a God. And now in Shemos, if it's the same paro, this opening of our parsha leads us to this paro that didn't know Yosef, and now he says in the times of Moshe and Aaron, the grandchildren, okay, that uh, let's go and, um, let's go and uh, get rid of them, because he says, uh, that, that's good, right? I mean, he enslaves them. And Moshe and Aaron come to him, and they say, God says that we should go serve Israel. And what does Paro answer in the verse? Who's the God talking about? God. It's God. I should listen to him. I don't know God. I don't know God. I'm not sending anybody. I'll get out of here. So according to the opinion, it's the same paro. There's, there's, a, there's an element of contradiction here between <laughs> you're so impressed with Yosef about his godliness and his power of Elohim, and now you're saying that there is, uh, who, who's God that I should, be, uh, I should be listening to him. Go ahead. Yaakov passed away, Yosef passed away, that whole generation. But the, but the yeah. spiritual, the protection that, that yeah. Yaakov, you know, provided Correct. was gone. Gone. The protection's gone, and we know that. The question is, what flipped in Paro's mind? What flipped? You, you, until you've been so impressed with the godliness of these people, and now when they come to you, you're the same Pharaoh, and you're like, who are you to tell me I that God said? This so that we'll leave. I mean, this is all preparation. This is okay, all so you're saying God shifted his mind. Right. Okay. Okay. What do I do? One answer. <laughs> One answer. Okay. That's for sure, too. Hashem changes, you know, but that, that's for sure. But what's the psychology behind it? You know, all psychology uh, stems from uh, stems from Torah. Right. All good psychology. <laughs> the ter- so Rav uh, Rav Pavarsky says as follows: 
says a beautiful, a beautiful idea. That the truth is, you can't compare Parshas Miketz when Yosef came out of prison to Moshe and Aaron going back to the same paro. Because when Yosef came out of prison, Paro said to him, you're going to help me out. I see godliness. And you're going to help me out. And you're going to turn Egypt into a world power. You turn Egypt into a superpower. You're not Pharaoh. Right? He tells him, I'm, I'm the one who sits on the throne. You're second in command. So what does he care how successful Yosef is? Doesn't care at all. The more successful Yosef is, the more successful Paro is. Just the opposite. Right? Instead of Paro being intimidated by anything, Yosef's there to help him. As opposed to in our Parsha and Shemos, Moshe and Aaron are coming to him, same, same Paro. And what are they coming to him to do? They're saying, give something up. Kla Yisrael has to leave. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, when Paro has to give something up to know God, he says, I, I, don't, I don't know God. I don't know God. Give something up? I don't know God. It's like that joke that they have with uh, communist Russia. There was a... Uh, they, they would go around and, and uh, propaganda and go into all the schools and you know, get the kids to get caught up in Mother Russia. And, you know, you know, Mother Russia takes care of you and everybody's equal. So an officer walks into a third grade classroom and he's you know, leading on the chance of the greatness of, of Mother Russia. And uh, there's one Jewish kid in the class and the officer picks out this kid and he says... Uh, Says Yankel, if you had, you know, if you had a farm, who are you giving the farm to? Yankel says, uh, farm's going to Mother Russia. He says, if you had a boat, who's the boat going? Yankel's like the boat, the Mother Russia. He says, if you had that, Mother Russia. He says, and if you had a chicken, who's the chicken go to? He says, me. <laughs> says you. What happened? The boat, the field, the land. The, the. He says, listen, a boat I don't have. Land I don't have. A chicken I have. You're not touching it. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> if you had one, you give it. That's mamish what's happening here with Paro. Paro's like, oh, God. I, I see God. But what happens as soon as it means to give something up for God? He says, ah, I, I don't see it so much. So says Rebbe Pavarsky, what's the psychology? Everything in the Torah and somehow connected, specifically Paro, by the way, the more you study him, the Sfarim HaKadoshim tell us, the more we, it's important to study Paro because Paro represents the Yetzirah. Paro specifically, his whole approach is Yetzirah, which if, if you follow him, he's fascinating in that he knows Hashem and doesn't know Hashem. He knows Hashem and doesn't know Hashem, which means he believes, but he doesn't believe in it, and he can never fully really uh, pull the trigger on, on anything. So, um, Rabbi Pavarsky says, you know, as long as it doesn't cost Paro anything, okay, I'm all in on God. As soon as it costs Paro something, no. He says the same thing is true when it comes to, uh, sometimes when it comes to our Yiddishkeit. He said like this, oh, Hashem, you gave me a mitzvah to do. Okay. He says, uh, listen, this mitzvah doesn't cost me anything. And, uh, you know, I get reward for it, I'll do it. What's it hurt? What's it hurt? Why not? It's all gain. And then there are some mitzvahs, it takes a... Takes an effort, takes a step. You got to give something up uh, from it. You know, it's not. It's not what I would have thought. It's not what I would have thought, and and it, perhaps it even goes against how I understood uh, the purpose of a halacha or the. But the Torah tells me that this is the right thing, and despite what society wants to tell me, and uh, now it means I'm like, yeah, is, is Hashem really right in this? Is the Torah really right in this? We start to think. 
What is that? It's this bit of paro that's really taking place, uh, taking place inside of us. And that's why, according to the opinion that Vayakam Elish Chodosh Al-Mitzrayim is the same exact paro, there's no contradiction. Because we all have these contradictions inside of us. There's certain mitzvahs that we could do, and then there's a contradiction where it's like, ah, not, uh, yeah. either I'm not ready for it, and sometimes we're talking not ready. You have to take things on you know, when you're ready. Some, as the Bali Musr teaches us, we say in the Marav prayer, in the blessing of Hashkivenu. So we say, Hashem, you lies down. And in that bracha we say, Vahasar, Hashkivenu, Hashem, Hashem, Vahasar Satan removed Satan, removed the Yitzhahara, Mofanenu from in front of us, Umeyacharenu, and from behind us. So the Musa leaders ask, to remove the Satan from in front of me, I understand, he's standing in my way. What do you mean to move the Satan from behind me? What does that mean? So they say, behind me means, sometimes the Satan's telling us to be religious, to be, do a little more, and we can't handle there's no tender, go, 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 go. You fell out the 10th floor window and you're done. You're just done. Because something's like, no, no, learn 40 hours a day. No, no, you got it. Don't, don't, don't close that book. So, he, something's shrewd. He knows what he's doing. And sometimes within our own religiosity, it's the Yitzhahara telling us to be so religious because it's not to our, uh, it, 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 our game. So on, on one hand, we need to be honest with, you know, uh, with um, what, what's pushing us to go places. At the same time, at the same time, we have to make sure that we're not only doing something because it's easy. And this ultimately what it is, it's the willingness to be uh, self-aware. Okay. Another idea on this expression of a new king arose on Egypt who did not know Yosef. If you look at Pasuches, Asher Lo Yada. It says he didn't know him. So the Svarim ask that why, if, if it's the same Paro who actually knew Yosef, so what do you mean he didn't know? It should say he didn't remember what Yosef did for him. He didn't remember Yosef. But to say you don't know Yosef is not really true. Okay? So what's the difference between Zecher remembering and knowing? So there's a fascinating... Um, Fascinating Medrash. And this is the Medrash I was getting to in the beginning. And I want to quote it verbatim. This is in Shmos Rabbah Aleph Ches. Rabbanon Amri. The Rabbanon say, Lama According to the opinion that he was a new king. Same, same Pharaoh. If it's the same Pharaoh, why are you calling him a new king? Listen to this. Incredible Medrash. And this explains why all the plagues had to come on every Egyptian. Same Pharaoh. It was the Egyptians who said to Paro, let's go take out the Jewish people. We don't like them. They're anti- the Egyptians were anti-Semites. Paro responded to all to his people. You fools. Yosef saved our country. Where's your gratitude? So Paro said to them, Where's your gratitude? Ilula Yosef, if not for Joseph, lo hayinu we wouldn't be alive. What's your problem? Kivan shalosham alohem, and the Egyptians said, no, 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 Paro. We don't like them. You got to get rid of them. And he didn't listen. Listen to what happened. They, they, they kicked him out from his kingship. There was a revolt, a coup. They got rid of him, 
Paro lost his position as king for three months, says the Medrash. And they couldn't find another pharaoh that was as good as him. So they had to come to negotiation. They had to come to the table. Pharaoh wanted his job back. What happened? Okay, fine. A good politician. Yeah, whatever you want, I'll do. That's why it says it was a new king. Because he actually, it was a new kingship. He wasn't king for three months. And now he became king again. So he's a new king. It was like a new reign that took place. Okay. Now, what's so incredible about this magic? Listen closely, this beauty. Why would why'd Paro become a different person with different decision-making abilities? Why? Because he was under pressure. Pressure changed Paro. What about Yosef? What about Yosef? Yosef went through 22 years living alone, incredible in this destructive place called Egypt. And Yosef was the tzaddik. The struggles that he went through for 22 years didn't change who he was. Paro couldn't handle it for three months. Okay? Paro, his tovim Yosef, shmayna, Ultimately, Paro and Yosef worked together for about 80 years. They worked together about 80 years. That's how long they... But what happened? He didn't know Yosef. That's why the Pesach says, we ask the question, why does it say a new king got up that didn't know Yosef? We said, same Paro, we should say he didn't remember Yosef. The answer is, no, no, no. The Torah is telling us something deeper. You could work with somebody and never know them. Never know them. If he knew Yosef, he would see what made Yosef tick. Yosef, by definition, was a person and this is a koach that he instilled in us as a people to keep going, despite the, whatever the world's going to throw at him. Paro did not know this reality of Yosef, and therefore he became a Melech Hadash. He lost his position and had to be rehired again because he never came, uh, came around to, uh, to this level. See, again, you see from here, Paro, again, con- uh, connected to our Yetzirah, that when... Uh, Sometimes we do something, but then when the going gets tough, we get a little uh, too comfortable to throw in the towel and fall into the pressure when that pressure is shekin. Now, sometimes pressure is good pressure, right? If people are right, people are right. Nothing wrong with giving in when you're wrong. You're supposed to give in when you're wrong. Um, But to change your values, enslave a whole nation because you want your job back and you're you're unemployed for three months, Paro, you're absolutely clueless. You're clueless. You can't. I mean, this is this was the definition of Yosef, and you don't uh, you don't touch his toenails. That's what it means. Lo yada es Yosef. Okay. Vayomer alamo hinei am bnei Yisrael rabbos mimenu. He said the people of bnei Yisrael are numerous. Havon is chakmalo. Let us outsmart them. And I shared this idea with Yimin Chamarav yesterday. It's a beautiful uh, idea that I saw brought down from Rabbi Naftali Heinemann from Muncie. I just got a, his set on, on Chumash, the beautiful set. Started learning through it this week. And he, he says, notice Paro's concern. He says, B'nai Yisrael is getting bigger. So what's his excuse now? He's excusing him, his own conscience. He didn't want to do this initially. 
He's excusing his conscience as to why they really need to be enslaved. You're not just going to be like, oh, you want me to do it? Okay, fine. No, no. So now he's, he's like becoming like it's him. We got to outsmart them. Pen, perhaps. Year back, they're going to become even bigger than us. And then, you know, if they become bigger than us, maybe we're going to be attacked by an enemy. And maybe if we're attacked by an enemy, the Jewish people will join the enemy. Now, let me ask you a question. If we wouldn't be enslaved and we'd be treated well, is there any reason why we would? No. But maybe. Small chance. Small chance you're ever being invaded. Small chance B'nai Yisrael is ever becoming more than you. And small chance that they're going to team up if you treat them well. And you know what the next maybe? The next maybe is, well, if they join the enemy and they win, a part of your world power, what do you? But maybe if they win, then they'll chase us out of the land. So Pilate's got a bunch of maybes going on here. Maybe they're going to become more numerous, too numerous, and maybe there's going to be a war, and maybe they'll join the opponent, and maybe the opponent will be victorious, and if the opponent is victorious, then maybe they'll kick us out of Egypt. Oh, so now we've got to be smart and get rid of these people. It's all maybes. It's all maybes. And sometimes you make these... Uh, these uh, decisions in life based upon maybes and the decisions in life don't fall in line with what their Rabbanu Shalom wants because we're concerned about maybe and therefore people aren't specifically where he brings this down where Rabbi Heineman brings this down is when it comes to finances. A right? person has enough food for today they have enough food for the next month. You have, you have a house you have food. But I, I can't really be honest I can't really be honest with my taxes. I can't really be honest with my financial because I need I need more. I need more of this because maybe this and maybe and and maybe and and maybe and maybe and therefore I got to make sure that says again that's the paro inside of us. What's with the maybes? It's not, it's not about the maybes. The Rebbeinu wants us to do something. That's the you know that's the avoda that uh, that's the avoda that needs to be done. So what does he do? They ultimately embittered. The lives of Klau Yisrael, and during this time, as we know, there were the, the women were giving birth to six children at a time. So he summons <clears throat> uh, Shifra and Pua, which was not their real names. Okay, so again, so Shemos is not the real names. Their real names were Yehovah and Miriam, but they were called Shifra and Pua because they. Uh, this actually in the Torah is giving us a very important message to people in the medical field. Rashi tells us that Shifra is Yocheved, and she was Shem Mishaferes Asavlad. She, when the baby would come out, she would make sure that the limbs were in order and the feet were straight, the body wasn't crooked, and you know she was that was uh, her role as a midwife. And Pua is Miriam, and the name Pua comes from Pu Pu Pu. Yeah, that you, when you pick up a baby, you go Pu Pu Pu. You know, you, you calm the baby down. She was the, you know, she was the one who um, one was the physical and one was the emotional, and you need both. Really, in order to be healthy, there's, there's, there's a lot of power in looking into this, uh, what's happening over here. Um, now, the, the question is that we're, we're defining Yochebed and Miriam, the Torah is defining them as Shifra and Pua. But look at their lives. Paro calls to them and he says, oh, you know, I want you to kill all the babies. They were Moser Nevesh. They were, I mean, they put their lives on the line to take care of these kids. It seems like the, their greatest thing that they did is that they didn't listen to Paro. 
So we should give them like one's name should be Mesirah Nefesh. In other words, give them names like they gave their lives over for Torah. You know what I mean? Like, you know. But what's with, what's with, it seems to be like it's a side thing. But the Torah is telling us, and I saw this from a sefer called Shalmei Shlomo, that you see that the Torah wants to teach us that when people are midwives, i.e. nurses, doctors, people in, a, in any area of medical field, the greatest thing that you could do when you're, when you're helping somebody out is not only to be a mi'aledes, not only to be a midwife, to act like a mother. To act like a mother. Nurture. Nurture. I was talking to a young man in, from our shul who's uh, in medical school. And we, were just, we learned together. And um, the, the topic came up, we were discussing end of life, things of that sort. And I, he's like, if, he's like, he's like Rabbi, if you could tell me one thing, tell me one thing like I should know. You know, he's, he, uh, now he's, uh, he's not practicing yet. He's almost practicing on, on his own. It's like, what's one thing you think I should know? And I said, listen, away from halacha, if there's something that I could just tell you from my own personal experiences um, with the medical field, with my own parents and my own family and uh, children and, and people in our shul and congregation, I said, do me a favor, never take away someone's hope because very often it's the only thing they have. And there's always a Like, Don't be one of those Physicians that says done. Somebody, if it needs to be done, tell somebody else to do it. That's what I'm telling you as your rabbi. If it needs to be done, tell somebody else to do it. Don't take away people's hope. Don't do that. The Torah is letting us know that by calling Yocheved and Miriam, who did such great things out as Mesiras Nefesh, what the, the the beauty that defined them is. The, the, the nurturing, the imais, the, the fact that they, that they acted, they said poo-poo-poo to the baby, and they, and they cuddled the baby, and they cuddled, and they, it's, not, not, it's not their child, but it's, it's, uh, it's an example of being a nurturing person. That's the greatest thing that we can do for somebody else is to, is to more than the, not more, besides for being a doctor, besides for being a nurse, the Torah is hinting to us as well, an, an additional part of the job is to be a Yocheved and a Miriam. But to Rebbe Yadav Zolakim, they didn't listen. They feared God. And they allowed the boys to live. So the king of Mitzrayim summons them, and he says, why are you doing it? And they give some example. It's a miracle that he listened to this example, to, to this excuse, I mean. They gave excuse. Our excuse is, listen, we don't make it in time. Yeah, they don't need midwives. I don't know about time we're there. The kids are, and, and Parah like accepts it. That's a whole Parsha in and of itself, a whole thing. Okay. I want to share, uh, I'll focus on one last idea, which gets into the, begins to get into the birth of Moshe. And that is, in Parah Beis, Vayelech Ishmi Beis Levi, a man from the house of Levi. Again, we're not listing his name. There's no name over here. A man from Levi went, Vayikach Bas Levi. He took a daughter of Levi, doesn't name his wife. And his name was Amram, and his wife's name was Yocheved. They're going to be the parents of Maishu Rabbeinu. And they remarried. Now, why'd they separate? They separated because once Paro made a decree to kill out the boys. 
They said, oh, what are you going to do? Make a decree, uh, have children, and then kill the boys? Stay separate. And then Miriam comes along, their six-year-old daughter, and says, hey, my dear parents, you're worse than Paro. Paro is decreeing against the males by you not being together. You're making, there's no males and there's no females. And this is like some element of prophecy to this. And they remarry. And from this, Moshe was born. Let me ask you a question. What, what did Miriam say that any person doesn't know? I'm not saying because I have an answer as an agenda. I don't have an answer. She's six years old. Her parents now divorced. Okay, They're, they got remarried. And one day she's like, she tells her father, the Gadol Adar, and her mother, who's the daughter of Levi, hey, by the way, you know, by you not being married, it's not going to be girls either. Duh. Yeah, like, what were they thinking before? And what changed? What's going on? Any takes? I'm not throwing this question out there. Go ahead. Well, maybe just the thought that they were worse than Paro, like they hadn't thought of it that way before. You know, they just said, well, let's protect our family. Okay, so what you're saying is that a a wise person, somebody who learns somebody else, sometimes you could be a thinking adult, but somebody frames it for you at a certain point and they reframe a situation and you're like, oh, okay, there's talk of truth to that. So, okay, so maybe you're, you're saying it just, the Torah's message is, you could be the greatest God of Adar. A six-year-old could reframe something for you. Okay, good. Yeah. Right? I was thinking like, who's getting insulted for getting involved in his parents in his life? And yet, so it's, so you're saying Amram and Yochavet realized that even if they, they your, according to your answer, I may just say it back so I'm understanding, they may have thought about it, but they realized that when Miriam said it, it's coming from a place of prophecy, and now it's from the Rabbani Shalom. So they realized that that is a better way to look at it than, mm-hmm. than, uh, than their actions. Okay, I hear. I'm, I'm fine with both answers. Fine with that. I don't yeah, but it's like, it's like what, 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 what changed? What changed? Huh? She couldn't be the first woman blibber because maybe women weren't as cautious in those days. So, you know. Maybe, except that Hashem told Avram he better listen to his wife. You know? And the women are the ones who got us out of Gullus. But I hear. Yeah, no, but I hear. Yeah. Listen, I, well, you, know what's, you know what's amazing? In every miracle that took place in Claudius Yisrael, it was and it was a woman who drove it. It's wild. Huh. Moshe and Miriam, and then yeah. go. Uh, Purim, yeah. Esther, yeah. Hanukkah, Yodas. Right, chopping off the general set, it changed the whole thing of the war. There's always like this backdrop behind all the. Um, yeah, yeah, and a shocked mother-in-law. Um, there's there's got to be something deeper there. There's got to be something deeper there in that you need those that are out there on the front line working through things. 
but there has to be like a backdrop, like a little bit like behind the scene, an element of ruchnius that is not necessarily noticeable, but is actually like causing the shift in everything. Like the women are pulling the string sometimes and the men don't even know it or see it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Think about it. the story of Purim. Nobody saw Esther. She was in the palace the entire time. Mm-hmm. She wasn't, and everything that she did was between her, Ahasuerus, and Haman. Mordechai had a little bit of access to her, and that was it. In the meantime, you have all the guys all fasting, and then, and then, and they're all, these are like the soldiers, you know what I mean? Like, where we're doing everything, and Mordechai is leading us, and there's a lady in the palace who's, right? Mm-hmm. And, by, uh, and by Hanukkah as well. Everybody's out there fighting, and the, the, you know, the war's not going so well. In the tent, she finds a way, she finds a way to chop off the general's head. You know, in the tent, she finds, you know. And over here, you have Klal Yisrael, like, you know, we're, we're in Mitzrayim, and there's a lot of Tsaras, and Maish Rabbeinu is going to be born, he's going to be the face of this redemption, but behind his whole birth, and everything that's there, there's his sister, who's, you know, like, kind of, Hashem is pulling the strings, but there's an element of, of hidden ruchnius and Chazal teach us that bro- that bracha comes from things that are nesalim and ayin. Very often you find by miracles that the the miracles come from the things that you didn't that that weren't readily noticeable, not readily noticeable. What what was readily noticeable? The plagues, the, the Maishra being leading us out. But what what helped like drive a lot of this? It's very often, it's very, it's very, you know, and I think that this idea of, of bracha coming from things that are hidden from the eye, Nisalim and Ayin, <clears throat> is very much falls in line with the reality that, uh, the reality that we're speaking about over here. So a man from the house of Levi went, and he took a daughter of Levi, they saw that he was good, and they hid him, they hid him for a total of three months uh, because he was a seven-month baby and they had that amount of time until they, uh, what happened was after marriages and they got remarried, the mitzvah would come and come look on the bed, check, you know, check to see if there's any children. So they had, to, uh, they had to beat them to the punch, so to speak. So what did they do? And this is a question that I think people don't think about, but I'm gonna leave, we'll leave off with this with food for thought. What did his parents do? You have a baby, now three months old. The Egyptians are going to come, and if they find him, they're going to kill him. What would you do as a parent? Stick him in a box, float him down the Nile. That's that's exactly what they did. Stick him in a box, float him down the Nile. Well, the modern day equivalent would be put him up for adoption. You know, huh? Adopt him out. You know, that would be the modern day equivalent would be put up for baby for adoption outside of the Jewish. You know, or, or not even. Or you're feeding him to the crocodiles. Whatever's living in there. I don't know. They wouldn't do that. Huh? <laughs> they wouldn't right, do so, that. So what, what is it? What, the, the Nile River is a big, I mean, it's a big river. A lot of rivers, it's like a central river. And the parents put Maishu Rabbeinu into the Nile River to save him. What else do you think they should have done? Put him up for adoption. 
Right? Dress him up. Yeah, dress him up like an Egyptian. Yeah. Oh. Uh, leave him abandoned at a door and, uh, you know, yeah. come back for him. But no, they stuck him in the knot. Did they just leave it to Hashem's? They sent Miriam the wrong way. Right? And Miriam's concerned about this because she's the one, going back to what we said before, she's the one who had the prophecy, which is why they remarried. And she's wondering, hey, you know, I, I had this prophecy that telling my parents that they're worse than Paro. And now what they originally thought is coming to fruition as opposed to my prophecy, this boy that they're having. And then what happens is, I mean, that's a question. This is something that we, we should think about over Shabbos. Okay? What, what exactly was, there's, there's something deep happening here. There's something deep happening with Amram and Yochebed and their whole approach. And they put him in the Nile River and by putting him in the Nile River, the irony of everything starts. Now's when the irony of the Hashem running the world, as opposed to Paro thinking he has power, starts. Because Paro's daughter, she doesn't have a bathhouse in, next to her bedroom. She's a princess, I mean... She's going to the Nile and this and the arm and, and then And Paro's changing his diapers and paying his tuition. It's exactly what's happening. He's killing millions of babies. Millions of babies. Every male. At a certain point, there's a Shandra said, we don't know if it's Jewish or he's killing Egyptian males. Millions and millions and millions of babies are being killed while to get one kid that they see with, astro- with uh, astrology, right? Astro- astronomy, astrology. Astrologers. Astrologers, right? They read the... the astrologer is telling him there's a savior and he's, he's flipping. He's killing everybody but this one kid comes from the box and Paro is literally paying this kid's own mother to nurse him. As we know, right? Moshe wouldn't nurse from anybody. Miriam was watching the whole thing, goes to Paro's daughter, he says, I know, I know, have a good wet nurse. And they end up bringing Moshe's mother to take care of him every day as the nanny. She's paid to watch her own kid and to nurse her own kid. And Paro's paying for everything. And until he's an adult, until he goes out, Paro's teaching him how to be a leader. Paro's sending him to school. Paro's teaching him all about royalty. Feeding him breakfast, lunch, and supper. And the irony of, of like, call it God's humor, which is part of the story that we're supposed to understand by Yitzhak Mitzrayim, where everything Paro tried to do, him and know that it's under his own nose, that he had no clue what was happening, and he's actually the one benefiting the Savior by teaching that Savior at a, it, it, the the just the, the 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 humor, the humor behind it, started from a decision of the parents to put, you know, mark a box, you know, code it. Make sure the kid's safe inside this box. Slide it off. But what exactly were Amram and Yechavit thinking? That's food for thought for Shabbos.